Welcome to conference coverage highlights presented by ReachMD on XM160 and powered by Health Day. Conference coverage highlights features the latest clinical information and research findings from CHEST 2009, the annual meeting of the American College of CHEST Physicians, which took place October 31st to November 5th in San Diego, California. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Kina. And I'm your co-host, Sue Berg. The annual meeting of the American College of Chest Physicians took place October 30th to November 5th in San Diego. The meeting attracted about 5,000 attendees from around the world and featured 500 presentations by expert speakers. According to Scientific Program Chair Lisa K. Morris of the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland, highlights included practice-changing papers in sleep medicine, chest infections, pulmonary vascular disease, obstructive lung disease, critical care, and mechanical ventilation. Some of the major topics were telemedicine and telehealth, both from an electronic intensive care unit and specialty care perspective. Research also was presented on how to care for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and asthma in patients in rural areas. In one study, researchers from the Overton Brooks VA Medical Center in Shreveport, Louisiana, studied the pre- and post-effects of a new telemedicine program on COPD patients. The program used an in-home electronic device that requests information on participants' health and transmits responses to a registered nurse. Investigators found that the telemedicine program was associated with fewer significant COPD exacerbations, and unscheduled hospital visits in a year due to COPD decreased from 3.59 to 1.95 per year. In a second related study, researchers from the Kansas-based Via Christi Health System in Wichita studied the effects of a tele-ICU program in rural facilities and to determine how it would save money and reduce carbon footprints. Researchers assumed a minimum of two days to travel from rural Kansas to Via Christi St. Francis Hospital in Wichita, Kansas. They calculated the cost of gasoline, lodging, meals, as well as the carbon footprint created by the trip. In 203 patients who were able to stay in their hometown hospital because of the program, the researchers estimated more than $133,000 in savings. During the meeting, Dr. Gerard A. Silvestri of the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston presented a review of three papers addressing the new staging system in lung cancer. The new system classifies patients differently based on the size of their primary tumor or their nodal status. It's also downstaged some patients who may need more aggressive therapy. It also dictates the approach to therapy, either with adjuvant chemotherapy or surgery, and how to avoid surgical approaches in patients who will not benefit from surgery. Dr. Silvestri and colleagues conducted a study of 29 patients with suspected lung cancer who underwent endobronchial ultrasound. They found that malignancy was associated with nodes larger than 40 millimeters compared to those smaller than 20 millimeters, with an odds ratio of 3.84. Also, round-shaped nodes were more likely to be malignant than triangular-shaped nodes, with an odds ratio of 9.09. Other significant studies showed that extended therapy may be useful in preventing venous thromboembolism in patients who undergo total joint replacement and that high blood sugar is associated with poorer outcomes in patients who present with pulmonary embolism. Researchers in Portugal conducted a retrospective longitudinal continuous analysis of 135 pulmonary embolism patients. They found 25% of patients with blood sugar levels above 250 milligrams per deciliter died in the hospital or required catecholamine infusion, mechanical ventilation, or cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Only 8.9% of patients with lower blood sugar levels experienced these primary endpoints. 
In another study, researchers from the Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City looked at nearly 21,000 World Trade Center responders. They found that before the 9-11 attacks, less than 1% had self-reported asthma episodes or attacks. This increased to 8% of responders between 2005 and 2007. Dr. Kalpalatha Gundapali, president of the American College of Chest Surgeons, said in a statement that asthma and other chronic lung conditions remain a significant burden for rescue and recovery workers responding to the attacks on the World Trade Center. He said that the significant chronic health problems associated with the World Trade Center attacks only reinforces the need for stronger disaster preparedness plans, as well as long-term medical follow-up for 9-11 responders and individuals who respond to future disaster-related events. On a lighter note, researchers from Morristown Memorial Hospital in Madison, New Jersey, studied 12 male golfers who received nasal-positive airway pressure treatment for obstructive sleep apnea. They found the treatment was associated with improved daytime sleepiness scores and a lowered golf handicap of up to three strokes. Dr. Mark Benton, the study's lead author, said in a statement that studies on nasal-positive airway pressure treatment for sleep apnea have found compliance rates among men as low as 40%. These studies report that men cite as reasons for noncompliance discomfort, inconvenience, cost, noise, and embarrassment. Dr. Benton said that providers typically attempt to maximize compliance with nasal positive airway pressure by promoting its medical benefits or warning patients of the risks involved in foregoing treatment. But he said this approach does not always work. The author said that in the case of this study, the possibility of improving one's ability to play golf appears to have been a significant motivator to comply with treatment. According to two studies presented, supplementing with vitamin B12 may benefit some patients with chronic cough. In one study, Italian researchers studied the effects of vitamin B12 supplementation in 40 patients with chronic unexplained cough. 25 of these patients had a B12 deficiency. After vitamin B12 supplementation, investigators found that upper and lower airways responsiveness and cough threshold improved significantly in B12-deficient patients, but not in the 15 patients without deficiency. Also, increased physical fitness may help preserve lung function in elderly adults. In a second study, researchers in South Korea assessed nearly 440 men and 561 women over 65 years old. Their adjusted analysis showed that lower muscle mass or higher fat mass in the body or trunk was associated with an increased risk of poor lung function. Interestingly, abdominal subcutaneous fat was negatively associated with poor lung function, but visceral fat was not. The researchers conclude that augmentation of muscle mass and reduction of fat would be helpful to increase or maintain lung function in elderly populations. Two studies presented at the meeting looked at issues in intensive care units related to sleep patterns and staffing, respectively. Researchers at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston compared overall sleep quality and vigilance in ICU nurses and floor nurses at the beginning and end of their shift. Drawing from the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, a self-rated questionnaire that assesses sleep quality and disturbances over a one-month time interval, they found that ICU nurses were more likely to have abnormal sleep, slower reaction times, and a greater frequency of errors across the lengths of their shift. The researchers also found that in ICU nurses who had higher PSQI scores indicating abnormal sleep, errors occurred an average of 2.5 and 3.5 times at either end of their shift. Floor nurses averaged about 1.6 errors at the beginning of their shift versus 1.5 at the end. The authors noted that sleepiness among nurses is prevalent and has implications for patient safety. 
In a second study, researchers from the St. Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston, New Jersey, studied the effects of a high-intensity staffing model that was implemented at a 16-bed medical surgical ICU in mid-2007. They found that the staffing model, consisting of intensivists rather than non-intensivists in concert with pulmonary consultants, was associated with a significant decrease in the incidence rate of ventilator-associated pneumonia per 1,000 ventilator days from 2.8 to 0. Research presented at the meeting looked at smoking cessation. In one study, researchers at the University of Arizona surveyed 250 hospital employees. They found that less than half of physicians and only 24% of nurses and 15% of medical technicians had any formal training in smoking cessation methods. Only 54% of physicians were aware of patient support services. In a second study, Canadian researchers compared smoking cessation rates in 27 patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease who took part in a pulmonary rehabilitation program and 386 patients who received standard care. They found that the pulmonary rehabilitation program was associated with a higher short-term smoking cessation rate and a higher sustained quit rate. In a third study, researchers from the Biomedical Research Institute at Harbor UCLA Medical Center in California looked at lung age of 3,500 smokers. They found that lung age based on percent FEV1 over FEV6 may more accurately calculate smokers' true lung age than current lung age formulas. Current formulas are based on height and FEV1 or FVC. The researchers found that by age 50, smoking is associated with average increases of more than 25 years in lung age. They conclude that when current smokers' airflow values are low but still within statistically normal limits, it is sensible and more persuasive to tell them their increased physiological lung age rather than that their spirometry is normal. Two studies looked at discharge rates of hospital patients and mortality among patients with acute respiratory failure admitted to teaching hospitals. One study done at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City looked at data from 2004 to 2008 on discharged intensive care patients. 1.4% were discharged home instead of to a step-down unit. The researchers found that home discharges became more frequent during the four years of the study. They also found that the six-month mortality in home-discharged patients, many of whom had incurable or inoperable malignancies, was 36.4%. In a second study, researchers used the U.S. nationwide inpatient sample database to review over 82,000 emergency admissions for acute respiratory failure. 40% were admitted to teaching hospitals. The mortality rate for teaching hospital admissions was higher than at non-teaching hospitals, at 25.4% versus 23.6%, respectively. Two studies looked at treatments for children hospitalized with asthma. In one study, researchers compared outcomes in children hospitalized with status asthmaticus. Some patients received a maximum steroid dose of 240 milligrams per day, and the others received a maximum dose of 60 milligrams per day. No difference was found in the median number of days spent in the hospital between the high-dose and low-dose groups. One author of this study reported financial relationships with AstraZeneca, Shearing Plow, and Teva. In a second study, researchers at Bridgeport Hospital and the Yale School of Medicine studied 201 children admitted to the pediatric intensive care unit with a diagnosis of severe acute asthma. When compared to low-dose albuterol treatment, high-dose treatment was associated with increased heart and respiratory rates and a 43.3% rate of metabolic acidosis compared to 8.3% for patients on low-dose treatment. The authors conclude that further prospective studies are needed to confirm these findings. According to research presented at the meeting, statins may significantly reduce the risk of venous thromboembolism in patients hospitalized with heart attack or stroke. 
However, research also suggested that in patients with heart failure, statin use can be helpful or harmful. Researchers from Northeastern University in Boston assessed 61 patients who took statins and 75 non-statin users with heart failure. They found that statin use was associated with improved pulmonary function and exercise tolerance in patients with systolic heart failure. However, statin use was associated with the opposite effect, increased dyspnea and fatigue and decreased exercise tolerance in patients with diastolic heart failure. In another study, researchers at the Albert Einstein Medical Center in Philadelphia looked at 593 patients admitted to the center after either a heart attack or a stroke. They found that only 8.3% of statin users developed venous thromboembolism versus 26.3% of non-statin users. Also, high-dose statin use of more than 40 milligrams per day was associated with a lower risk of venous thromboembolism compared to standard-dose statin use. In a statement, the author said that venous thromboembolism leads to significant morbidity, mortality, and hospital costs every year. Statins may prove effective in helping to reduce the incidence of venous thromboembolism in specific patient populations, although more research is needed. According to research on restless leg syndrome presented at the conference, Caucasian women are disproportionately affected by the disorder. Investigators studied 190 patients seen at a primary clinic. 103 were African-American and 87 were non-African-American, mostly Caucasian. Researchers found that prevalence of restless leg syndrome was three times higher among non-African-Americans than in African-Americans. The prevalence was nearly four times higher among non-African-American women than in African-American women and more than twice as high among non-African-American men as in African-American men. Studies authors say they would expect similar results in other large urban centers with similarly diverse pools of patients. They add that many diseases and medications can lead to restless leg syndrome, and therefore there will likely be a difference between populations with chronic health issues compared to those who are well and healthy. Research presented also suggests a high prevalence of bruxism in patients with sleep apnea. Researchers also found bruxism is particularly prevalent among men and Caucasians. Researchers conducted a review of 150 male patients and 150 female patients with obstructive sleep apnea. In both groups, one-third was Caucasian, one-third African-American, and one-third Hispanic. Overall prevalence of bruxism was about 25%, with a rate of 43% in men and 31% in women. Rates were higher in Caucasians at about 35% versus 19% in Hispanics. According to the authors, studies suggest that certain therapies for obstructive sleep apnea, such as continuous positive airway pressure, may also help eliminate bruxism during sleep. Thank you for listening to conference coverage highlights from CHESS 2009 the 75th Annual International Scientific Assembly of the American College of Chest Physicians, held from October 31st to November 5th in San Diego. Conference coverage highlights is a presentation of ReachMD Radio, broadcast on XM160 and by live stream at ReachMD.com, and powered by Health Day.